Martin Luther wasn't fond of the book of James. <laughs> in his preface to the New Testament, Luther writes, in a word, St. John's Gospel in his first epistle, St. Paul's epistle, especially Romans, Galatians and Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle are books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know. Even if you were never to see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, St. James's epistle is an epistle of a straw compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of gospel about it. Luther, one of the fathers of the Reformation, believed James was a lesser book. Not a completely useless book, but secondary compared to John or Romans or Galatians because it isn't gospel-centric according to James. Jesus' death and resurrection are not highlighted. It's too Catholic according to James. His death and resurrection are never mentioned. There's not an emphasis about faith and putting your faith in Christ for salvation. Jesus said it was too works-based. And at one point, Martin Luther said, I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the fire. We're going to study James <laughs> until Advent. So for the next few months, it's going to be the book we find ourselves in because... I do believe James is gospel-centric. Just not in the way that Martin Luther preferred. Books like Galatians and Romans, they tell us how to enter into a relationship with Jesus. They take the emphasis off works of the law, off of Judaism. They talk about grace and blessing and freedom and the need for faith, imputed righteousness, growing in Christ in that sense. And so it's about how we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. It's how the gospel saves us. But James is more concerned about what happens as saved people. What the gospel produces in us. What the gospel does in our lives, the fruit of such gospel, and the type of fruit that a living faith produces. And so it's two ends of the same coin. One is about what it looks like to come to faith in Jesus Christ, why faith is important, Christ's work on our behalf, grace and mercy. The other is, is what does the gospel actually produce in our lives? Both gospel-centric, but they're two sides of the same gospel coin. Turn to James. We're going to jump right in. James is after the book of Hebrews. It's a very practical book. Uh, it's uh, proverbial in a sense. It's, it, it reads like Proverbs at times. It seems to jump from, from uh, insight to insight to insight to insight. But if we read James carefully, uh, I believe there are some connections to those seemingly uh, random transitions that happen throughout James. And, and that's what we're going to do today. And in our first section here today, you're really going to see themes that are unpacked throughout the entire book. You're going to see themes about poverty and trials and suffering and preference and riches and wealth and all of those things and wisdom. You're going to see this. It's almost a thesis 
of the rest of the book or an abstract of the rest of the book uh, and what that book is about. So turn to James 1, look at verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, greetings. James is the brother of Jesus. And so after the resurrection, James comes to a saving faith in Christ Jesus. He's a believer. He rose to a position of prominence in the Jerusalem church. He's a leader there. And James himself is writing to Jewish Christians scattered and displaced from their homes outside of Israel, possibly because of persecution. Now, it could be figurative when he says the dispersion, Jews spread out. Uh, I believe it is literal. He is talking to Jews. It's probably both. But he is talking to Jews who are spread out all across the known world outside of Jerusalem who are suffering for different reasons. Many in these communities, because they're refugees, are under stress. They're impoverished and they're oppressed. Others, though, are wealthy, which always causes friction when you have rich people sitting right next to poor people. Because we are sinful, that can cause problems. And so into this situation where there's poverty, there's wealth, there's struggle, there's trials, James writes his letter to these people. So look at verse 2. Count it all a joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We studied this passage within this year, not that long ago. Count it all, joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And trials and suffering and pain, it's really, those are really going to be the themes that are woven throughout today's passage where James is really going to give us a number of different spiritual insights to help us face trials well, to help us consider them a joy. And he says, count it all joy, Consider it a joy when you face trials. This seems very counterintuitive. Yay! We just got hit with a doctor bill that we're unable to pay right now. Let's get the party hats on. Man, let's celebrate. My kids are sick. My marriage is in shambles. Bring out the cake. This is great. Consider It just seems counterintuitive. Consider, consider it a joy. I believe James is talking about more about how we think and less about how we feel. Think of it as a joy. We need to think about our circumstances and not just emotionally react to our circumstances. Count it all a joy, joy. Joy differs from happiness. It's deep content. It's a thankful trust in God. Whenever you face trials, not if you face trials, if you're coming to church, if you desire to follow Jesus to get out of trouble, to get out of suffering, to get out of pain, you will be sorely disappointed. Sometimes we treat suffering and pain and trials like a door-to-door salesman. Like, how dare you knock on my door? It clearly says no soliciting. How dare you come into my life? I don't want what you're selling. Get off my doorstep. You are not allowed in my house. I don't want what you have to offer. 
Consider it a joy whenever trials and sufferings knock on your front door. When they knock on your front door. Why? There has to be a reason why. Look at verse 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. We count our trials a joy because God is at work when you suffer. He is testing your faith, proving the validity of your faith. And this testing produces endurance, steadfastness. Endurance, steadfastness is faith stretched out. It is tough faith, durable faith that doesn't easily fold. It's fortified faith, resistant faith that isn't easily shaken. And when that endurance takes root in our lives, it can produce Christ's likeness. The ultimate goal of a trial is to make you mature, complete, not lacking anything. It's why we can say in the face of a trial that God can mature me through this. God can mature me through this. I say can and not will for a reason. I don't say God will mature me through this trial. I say God can mature me through this trial because we must let steadfastness have its full effect. Which simply means we must not throw in the towel before perseverance can produce completeness. It's easy in the midst of pain to think, this isn't what I signed up for. I mean, I knew that when it came to following Jesus, I, I, I knew there was this idea of taking up my cross. I didn't really know what that meant. And, and I didn't fully understand that the cross would be this heavy. It's easy to say, why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. I don't deserve. Why? Why me and not the person over there who's running towards their sin? And it's easy for us then to, to take the towel and just, just throw it in, let the towel hit the ground. It's very easy for us to give up if that thought process overtakes our mind before we get to the good stuff. Before God brings about perseverance and, and steadfastness and, and maturity in our life. One pastor I was reading this week said, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on an experience that at the times, I looked back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or 
attained. Okay, I get it. (laughs) I got to endure. I got to let steadfastness have its full effect so God can mature me. I shouldn't throw in the towel when life is hard, but but how do I really do that? It'd be easy just to say, you just got to try real hard. You just got to hang on. But it's really not about that. And we see that in the very next passage. Look at verse five. If any lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Now, I believe this is true in every circumstance that life throws out you at you. Uh, but I do believe the context here is in regards to trials. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach and it will be given to him. If you want to move towards maturity, when you meet trials of various kinds, you need wisdom. You need wisdom. And obtaining wisdom isn't simply about increasing knowledge or understanding or intellect. There are a lot of academically smart people who aren't wise. Wisdom is understanding that moves to practical application. It helps me understand what is right, yes, but it also helps me to to live out what is right, to live out the commands of God, to do the things that he wants me to do. Wisdom enables us to know and live out the answers to the following questions. What do you want me to do today in light of this trial? How might I remain faithful to your call on my life and love and to love and serve you? How do I navigate this painful circumstance in a way that honors you? Real wisdom. It's a gift from God who is ready and willing to give it generously, abundantly, without hesitation. He will not mock you. He will not call you dumb or make fun of your request. He will honor it. We can say in the midst of hardship that the all-knowing, omniscient God of the universe can give me wisdom in this trial. And I say can and not will for a reason. Because there's a condition placed upon us here. We must ask for it. We must ask for wisdom. I'll talk about this here in a second. Is that your first response when suffering or trial hits your your life? To truly, not just be like, God, what do I need to do? But but to truly sit and, and ask God, God for wisdom. The tense of the verb here is present, indicating ongoing activity in some sense. We must continually ask for wisdom. Some of us are really good at asking once and then just getting angry when God doesn't answer that prayer. But the idea here is in the midst of a trial, we are continually, persistently asking God for wisdom. What 
do I need to do today in light of this trial to love you, to move forward in faith, to obey you, and to serve you? We're going to ask, and we're to ask in a certain way. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. (laughs) For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I must ask in faith with no doubting. That seems somewhat extreme because I don't know about you, but I doubt. (laughs) There are a lot of things I doubt on a day-to-day basis. And this this passage has been abused by prosperity gospels, by by prosperity gospel teachers and and naming and claiming teachers to talk about your, it's about your faith. Your faith must be pure enough and strong enough. It must lack doubt in every form. And only then will God answer those prayers. And you sit there and say, man, I I struggle with that. Because there's a lot of things I do doubt in life. I believe that faith and doubt here are in reference to the identity and nature of God. You are to have faith in God's character. You are not to doubt God's character. There's a difference there. We must have faith in and not doubt God's character that he is good. That he is the one true source of wisdom. That he will give us what we need. When we question these things, we're like a wave of the sea. We we oscillate between faith and skepticism. Faith and skepticism. When we question these things, our prayers really just undermine themselves. (laughs) God Give me wisdom, but I really don't believe you're the type of God who gives wisdom or you're the only source of true wisdom. That sort of prayer cuts itself out of the legs. When we, when we doubt such things, we're going to look for wisdom in other places, the world, culture, other faiths, TikTok. Don't find wisdom on social media, please. If you ever hear a nugget that you think is truth from Facebook, TikTok, or social media, I do not want to hear about it. Hey, I read this thing on Facebook. Done. We're done talking. James calls such people double-minded, soul-divided. We're to have a single-minded faith, doubtlessness in who God is. Do you you see that difference? Do you you see the difference there? When calamity hits, who or what do you run to first? Do you call up your your, your parent? What do I do here? Your friend? Do you Google? 
like, what's your first response? Do you throw up a quick prayer, but then try to work real hard and, and making everything fit and making everything right? Or, or do you go to God first? And do you go to God continually? I'm very good at, at going to God first. God, I need your help. This is overwhelming. But I don't stay there. <laughs> I quickly move on into crisis control. What do I need to do? What do I need to fix? What do I need to make right? Hey, maybe I can Google some articles here. Maybe I can figure some things out online. Maybe I can talk to this person, talk to this person, talk to this person. God wants us to come to him first and continually. He wants us to say, God, I I know you're good and that you are the only true source for spiritual wisdom to help me know what to think and do next. And I'm going to put these other things down and I'm going to put you first and I'm going to listen to you. And if I don't hear your voice, I'm going to continue to listen to you. I'm going to wait on you. I've had mentors, mentors, mentors. Mentors are people who print money. Uh, Mentors are people who mentor. Uh, Mentors are also people who make chocolates. And uh, I've had mentors all throughout my life. Um, older men that I've loved and that I pepper with, with questions about life and, and ministry and, and I just sit and I soak it in A, because I'm an idiot uh, B, because I need that wisdom and C, because God speaks through those people but as I get older life just kind of happens I move on not from them, but you know, I, just, I moved to a different place. Uh, they move. Seasons of life change where those, those relationships aren't as easily accessible as they once were. I used to be with mentors week after week after week after week. And I'm still going to look for, for, for men who can speak into my life, but, but I have comfort that the omniscient, all-knowing, God of the universe can and desires to give me wisdom generously if I ask for it. He desires to pour out his wisdom onto my life to help me endure whatever trial I'm facing, whatever season of life I'm dealing with. He'll mature me through this He'll give me wisdom in this. James gives us one final spiritual truth to help us face our our trials rightly. Look at verse nine. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. This could be talking about spiritual humility. I believe in the context of James, lowly here means poe, poor. Let the lowly exalt in his exaltation. 
the notorious B.I.G., once said, Mo money, mo problems. Uh, but we could all agree that if there's no money, there's mo problems. Many in this congregation are facing poverty. We'll learn why later on in James. Most of us in this Western context don't identify with us, uh, but many of us who live in Castle Rock, who work blue-collar jobs, who aren't doctors or lawyers, um, we live paycheck to paycheck. And so we know what it's like to, to struggle. We probably don't know to the extent that was experienced here. Just let's be real. None of us are really poor. But what God promises to the poor through James is that there's hope for a future exaltation. The poor will be exalted and vindicated by God. Not all poor, but those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They will be exalted. They will be vindicated. They will be lifted up. They will be restored. They will experience glory. Now, just a quick side note here. This this is not a reason to keep people in poverty. <laughs> James, over and over again, tells us to alleviate the, the suffering, the trials of the poor. But many wrongs in this life are not righted. And so if poverty is a trial, you can say with confidence that this isn't the end. That's ultimately what James is saying here. I know you're struggling I know you're impoverished. I know you're suffering, but this isn't the end for you. I believe this is speaking of a future exaltation that is promised to those who are suffering in this life. And so although poverty is in view here, I really think it's something we can say about any trial in life, any suffering in life, that it isn't the end for you. Now, many of you have walked into this room. You are struggling with some situation. Uh, You may be too prideful to admit it, uh, but you're dealing with some sort of junk. And I need to tell you, this isn't the end. Whatever you're dealing with right now isn't the end for you. We are promised that. You may say, well, I have terminal cancer. I'm I'm deathly sick. It isn't the end for you. It's not. God is working in it to mature you. He will give you wisdom in it uh, and, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. We are promised glorification as God's people. Look at verse 10 and 11 as we wrap up. In the rich and his humiliation were to boast. The rich... In our humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and, and withers the grass. Its, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I personally don't know who James is talking to here. I'm going to be honest. Some believe it, it's the wicked non-Christians 
who are persecuting and, and oppressing the poverty-stricken believers. There'll be justice there. Could mean that. It also just could be a, a reminder for, for wealthy Christians to, to humble themselves in light of what God is doing and will do. My seminary professor, Craig Blomberg, said in his New Testament survey book that James is reminding these rich Christians of the temporal and transient nature of their wealth. Instead of boasting in their material possessions, they should glorify in their lowly dependent condition before the God of the universe. Their humiliation is about acknowledging their dependence on Christ rather than their riches. So the idea is, is no matter how rich or wealthy you are, the status you enjoy, all of that is remarkably transient. Understand that, live in light of that. Therefore, your attitude towards wealth is of great importance. Use what you have to honor God. Let's bring this all back. The gospel of Jesus Christ when believed, completely changes the way we, we see suffering. Uh, when I first studied Hebrew under a, a world-renowned professor, genius, uh, he's right there. <laughs> um, it was all just squiggles to me. I, 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 on, on one of the first days of, of seminary, uh, they had us pick name, or uh, of that class, they had us pick names. I picked the name Yafet. What does Yafet mean? The wide one. The wide one. <laughs> really a smart idea. <laughs> uh, the wide one. And so uh, it was all just gibberish. You got to read backwards, totally different alphabet, different rules. Um, and I would look at it and I would say, I have no idea what's going on here. I, I don't know what to make of this. I don't know what to do with this. Um, this is this is hard. I, I, I don't know what steps to take. Like I, I it was just it, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. And then you study, and then you learn, and you memorize, and you understand the rules. And what was once scribbles be, becomes you know I'm putting things together. I see that this matches this, and this means this. And you start to say to yourself, I'm starting to understand what's going on here. I'm starting to get what. what what God is actually doing and saying to us. The gospel works in a very similar way when it comes to our suffering, our trials, and our pain. Before we know Jesus, we look at suffering and I think all we see are scribbles. I can't make heads or tails of it. I have no idea why this is happening. I can't make any sense of what God is doing here. I can't put it together, and that causes me stress and frustration. But then the gospel comes, and, and, and the gospel is like our, our great suffering decoder ring. <laughs> we begin to see what God is doing in our pain, and we start to understand, man, man, God can actually use this. I, I can see now that God can actually use these scribbles he could actually use this mess. He could use what was once confusing to me to help me persevere, to grow my steadfastness and to make me more like Jesus. I, and I understand that, that, 
that God actually gives me wisdom to help me do that. He gives me wisdom to, to, to move forward. He gives me wisdom to, to know what to do. And he helps me understand. And he gives me faith that this, this problem I'm facing isn't forever. We get a whole new lens, a whole new perspective, a whole new filter to look at the crap that happens in our life. It's why you need the gospel. That's why you need to come back to the gospel. Remind yourself of the gospel. Who God is. What he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. With whom the ultimate suffering was endured to bring about the greatest good. We need that gospel. Your neighbors need that gospel. This has been uh, in the educational environment. Coaching, subbing has been one of the hardest years because we're kind of dealing with the aftermath of this, this COVID generation that, that went through very significant life changes in isolation. And, and what we're seeing is a lot of kids are suffering. A, a lot of adults are suffering. A lot of people are struggling physically, mentally, emotionally, and guess what, even financially. I can't tell you how many people we've helped through benevolence and we love doing that as a church because financial calamity has, has struck their life and they can't pay for, for last month's rent, not even this month's rent. People are, 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 are in pain. And so when we talk about the urgency of the gospel, yes, we want people to be saved. We want people to know Jesus Christ first and foremost. We want to be with those people in, in, in the, the new heavens and new earth celebrating and worshiping God. But we also want those people to know the blessings of salvation, in part the blessing of knowing that God can and will work through my junk. That God has purposes. When evil or pain comes into my life, your neighbor, your coworkers, your teammates, your friends, they need Jesus. I thank God for God's words. And James, I thank God for this book that I'm excited to further unpack with you. I thank God that he is sovereign, that he can do all of these things. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.